Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. On the program this time, three topics all along the lines of cyber matters within the Defense Department. Later on in the show, a new lawsuit by a prominent veterans group claims DOD is putting service members' personal data at risk via a publicly accessible website. Also, the department has just wrapped up its third bug bounty. We'll talk with Martin Mikos, the CEO of HackerOne, the company that coordinates those white hat hacker competitions on the Pentagon's behalf. First, though, President Trump recently made a long-awaited decision on the future of U.S. Cyber Command, elevating it to a full unified combatant command on par with the other functional combatant commands in the military, like Special Operations Command, Transportation Command. Since 2009, Cybercom has been a sub-unified command within U.S. Strategic Command. Congress explicitly authorized that change in the annual Defense Authorization Bill back in December, but it's only one of the major changes Congress has set in motion for Cybercom. To talk about where the command has been and where where it is headed, we are joined now by retired Rear Admiral Bill Lair. He was a deputy commander of Navy Fleet Cyber Command when DOD first set up Cybercom and the military components of Cybercom. He retired in 2014 as the Navy's Director of Warfare Integration for Information Dominance. He's now the Director of Government Cybersecurity Solutions at Raytheon. And Bill, my, my sense of this is that in and of itself, elevating Cybercom to a full unified combatant command probably doesn't do a whole lot operationally, you know, as a practical matter, even if it is really symbolically important. Because um, it's not clear to me how much you can do as a unified combatant command versus a sub-unified combatant command. But but tell me if you see things differently and if this really is significant. I, I do think it's uh, largely symbolic at this, but it also is, uh, it's one of those symbolic things that's really important. For me, this says that Cyber Command is coming of age. If you go back, uh, the, the you know, to the beginning of Cyber Command, it, it had to depend on that NSA relationship, and, and it's always been tethered to, you know, some other entity. And now that you see these tethers, you know, loosening and it kind of stand up says that they're maturing, they're 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 being effective, and they're ready to have that uh, relationship with other combatant commands. Without, you know, intermediary probably isn't the most accurate word, but but it's a direct relationship, which isn't what it's been in the past. Was it sort of an awkward fit within U.S. Strategic Command to begin with, even if it sort of needed to have its own home uh, within another organization? You know, not really. If you go back to the the 2010 time frame, I mean, that was that was fairly deliberate to do that. If you if you think back to that time frame, uh, the existing uh, cyber DoD commands all fit under that. Uh, that STRATCOM framework. And, and back in that time, General Cartwright had done some things to really focus on five or six very key areas, space, intelligence, cyber. And, and so it made sense to, to put it with strategic command back in that time frame. You were deputy commander of Navy Fleet Cyber Command in, in some of those early earliest days of this whole enterprise. Um, you've obviously stayed close to things throughout the years. T talk about some of that maturation that you mentioned that you've seen this whole cyber enterprise go through over the past several years. What I mean, what do you think some of the key milestones have been up until now? Um, it, you know, if you start at the very beginning, the, the stand up of, of the commands themselves was 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 very important. It, it went from you know, uh, loose confederations across all of the services and, and STRATCOM as a combatant command to 
to military organizations that looked exactly like uh, all of the other combatant commands organizations, and that was important. The next thing would be the uh, the creation of the Cyber Mission Force and and the sourcing of the the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that make up the Cyber Mission Force uh, today. And and now you see they are all at their IOC, and many of them are fully operational capa- capable. Now the other thing that you're seeing is, you know, really uh, some differentiation at the service level. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One would be the Army and uh, the cyber mission, uh, the cyber protection brigades that you see stand up at Fort at Fort Gordon. That's really very broadly focused across the Army as a as a cyber defense uh, response force. The other example is in the Navy where. this summer when the change of command happened at the Navy's Fort Meade Cyber Command, they actually did a split of the command and and took the cyber forces and split them from what traditionally had been a very intelligence-focused NSA-supported uh, command. So these things are all uh, coming to coming together. That that differentiation that you mentioned that's an interesting point because some of the some of the head scratching that's gone on over the past few years as well do we really need to have separate cyber commands within each of the military services so from your point of view has that differentiation kind of happened along the lines of the military services respective traditional missions is there a rhyme and reason to it where you can look across the enterprise and and see yeah it makes sense for the air force to do this the army to do this the navy to do this. Uh, you, you really see that happening in the Army today. And, and I gave the example of the Cyber Protection Brigades that's very uh, cross-Army focused. And in the Army, you're also, uh, you hear them talk about, as part of cross-domain battle, how we're going to integrate cyber capabilities at the brigade level as fast as they can. I would say the other services are probably a little uh, bit further behind there that uh, they're, they're still very much focused on uh, network defense capabilities as opposed to more broadly looking at uh, things that are happening within you know, a wing or carrier battle group if it's the Air Force or the Navy. Also on just organizational matters, um, Congress, aside from allowing this change, has has also made some other major changes to Cybercom in the past few years, You know, giving it its own acquisition authority, requirement setting. Um, and, and I think some of the man, train, and equip type functions that we'd normally associate with a military service, that those sorts of things feel like they're probably going to be more important changes as those continue to get implemented. But um, tell me what you think. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's why you're seeing you know two different steps. This the step that was announced last week as part of the executive order elevates Cyber Command, and I think that's a perfect word. It puts them on a par. I, I think there's still a number of things to be worked out. Senator McCain was was kind of outspoken that, you know, you shouldn't separate NSA and Cyber Command until you can show that they can stand up by themselves. NSA is still a very, very important part of uh, Cyber Command's operations, both offensively and defensively. I mean, I, I think we'd be, you know, kidding ourselves if we thought anything else. So standing up and showing that... Uh, that differentiation from NSA will be one piece of this. And I think the other piece is going to be uh, really getting capabilities that stand on their own, uh, whether they're offensive cyber operation capabilities or defensive cyber operation capabilities, that COCOMs will begin to recognize that 
where it fits inside of their scheme of operations. And then, you know, you started at a place, you know, how do the services really fit? Do you, you know, do you need a, a cyber force onto its own or a cyber service? I've never personally been an advocate for that. Um, I think all of the services have uh, uh, somewhat unique environments that, th- that they're operating in. And for the time being, I believe we're best off to have a component like Fleet Cyber Command or 24th Air Force or our cyber focusing on the needs of the services. If we took a step back and and stood up a cyber service, I think it would probably slow our progress down. On the relationship with NSA that you mentioned, at this point, several years into Cybercom's maturation, are there there obvious pluses or minuses to, to continuing that relationship? I, I think the, the the thing that will have to continue is there's going to be a, a need for deconfliction in cyberspace and and you know previous executive orders have uh, established NSA's role in in that function. Uh, it, you know it's really uh, fairly easy to uh, bump into someone uh, unknown in cyberspace, and there has to be a deconfliction agent there. And, and NSA still has the predominant capability to be able to do that. So for that reason, I think you'll always see some kind of relationship. I think there'll also be a relationship where uh, very much the way it is today between Intel and operations, you'll see an exchange of DOD personnel uh, who flow back and forth between an NSA assignment and a uh, DOD assignment. So I, my sense is it will be it will be close and a good working relationship for years to come. From an industry perspective, where you now sit, um, how much change do you envision? I mean, for, for example, Cybercom's holding its first ever industry day coming up on October 27th to, to I think, exercise some of those new acquisition yeah. authorities we talked about. I mean, do you do you see companies like yours increasingly working directly with Cybercom more than the military services? I I, I do think that will that will happen, and and you know I I think the more we understand about cyber, the more that we see that uh, it's going to use uh, acquisition methods, testing methods, employment methods that are like any other uh, weapon system that DoD feels today. So I think. I, I think that really will become the trajectory that cyber follows over time. It's it's perhaps a little difficult to see that today when uh, most of what we've done has been very, very dependent on the skills of a of an individual to to navigate cyberspace. But but I believe that the scale of the problem will come to that we're going to embed technology and in black boxes. I think there are analogies for this if you just follow uh, the the evolution of, of, you know, air bombardment. It went from, you know, uh, very crude bombs that were dropped off airplanes with, with almost no sights to uh, advances during World War II to now cruise missiles that you would see today. I think cyber has to follow a model uh, somewhat like that. Uh, and it will probably be accelerated because everything seems to happen faster in cyberspace. On the scale issue that you just mentioned, last question on that. So as I recall, one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons, that, that this was nested within Stratcom from the beginning was that folks wanted to make Cybercom sort of a relatively lean, but more importantly, agile organization. Is there any risk of losing some of that as the organization continues to grow, as it becomes its own unified combatant command? 
I I don't think so. Uh, you know, part of the part of the thinking back in 2010 was was really uh, being able to resource it. Um, DoD was under a lot of budget pressure at the time. Uh, the thought of standing up a new uh, fully resourced uh, cyber command was was probably outside of the reach of the budget without cutting something back and and we were uh, in contact in in both uh, Afghanistan and Iraq at the time so it, it had as much to do with economy of force as it did leanness of force uh, I think I think going forward cyber command has a challenge much like Stratcom does it has a global mission and and cyber command has this global mission and it's going to need to have the resources to be able to uh somewhat uniquely serve each of the 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 primary geographic commanders for for me who's been part of this from the beginning uh this is uh this is a key step and and it really does signify cyber command coming of age that's retired Navy Vice Admiral Bill Lair, now the Director of Government Cybersecurity Solutions at Raytheon, talking with us about the recent news that U.S. Cyber Command is becoming a full unified combatant command. Short break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about the results of the Defense Department's latest bug bounty and what's next for how the Pentagon employs white hat hackers to test its cybersecurity. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serviu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Pentagon has just wrapped up its third bug bounty, this one on behalf of the Air Force. The competition turned out to be DOD's largest yet. 272 white hat hackers found 207 verified vulnerabilities in Air Force systems, including some very serious ones. To talk more about the results of the competition and what both the Pentagon and the hacker community learned from it, we're joined now by Martin Mikos. He's the CEO of Hacker One, the firm that coordinated Hack the Air Force. And Martin, as I said, this is the third of these bug bounties that you've run for the Defense Department. Um, what what were some of the key takeaways in the Air Force edition? Whether whether that's whether that's common threads that run through each of them, or anything new and different or potentially surprising, I guess, that, that came out of the Air Force edition? Well, I could say that when we started a year ago with Hack the Pentagon, it was a completely new and pioneering initiative, and and it produced results beyond any expectation, even back then. And and then we've, we've learned about the process and perfected it over the, the, the subsequent challenges that we run. Now we've hacked the Air Force, we produced the, the biggest results so far, meaning over 200 valid vulnerabilities in just 24 days. So just in terms of output, it was by far the most productive challenge that we've run so far. Was it bigger by design? Do you have any particular theories as to why this one produced more vulnerability reports than the prior two? It was, yes. Actually, there's some numbers were smaller. Like in the first hack, the Pentagon, we had 1,400 vetted hackers. Here we had only 272, but we had already pre-qualified them, so we know we had a very good crew of, of hackers involved. Uh, then we set the scope appropriately, meaning defining the attack surface that they were asked to go and hunt bugs in. And we gave them very good information about how to look for them and, and where to find, the, not where to find the bugs, of course, but, but we gave good information about the attack surface and that all helped to produce good results. 
And, and what was the scope in this edition? I know in the Hack the Pentagon one, it was public-facing websites operated by the defense media activity. I think Hack the Army was primarily um, personnel-type public-facing websites. Did the, did the Air Force edition have any particular target set? Uh, we had a dozen publicly-facing websites, some of the most uh, important ones and operationally most vital ones that the Air Force is running. I don't have the list now in front of me, but there was a, a list of about 12 separate websites that were in scope. In each of these, in each of these contests, though, it, it seems as though the government is still running them as sort of a proof of concept on, on, on a relatively small scale compared to, you know, the vast IT enterprises that, that each of these military departments run. I, I bring that up just to ask, theoretically, hypothetically, if they decided to, to, to open it up to their entire universe of public-facing websites and just run ongoing bounties all the time, could, could, could the system scale up to support that? That's a great question, and the system could absolutely scale to it. And, and we are already at, at very large scale with some of our biggest customers in the digital space, many cloud companies who run very large bug bounty programs. And we certainly have the hacker community and the researchers who could produce that result. And I agree with you that the, the DOD and more broadly the federal government is still doing it in small scale. But at the same time, we should give them huge credit and kudos for be being such pioneers, because even though it's smaller than some commercial companies, it still is way ahead of many other uh, traditional industrial enterprises who are only now waking up to, to bug bounty programs. So the DOD and the, the, the Defense Digital Services are true pioneers in this space. And I know one thing that was attempted for the first time around in the in the Hack the Air Force edition was to open it up to non-U.S. citizens. In other words, uh, you know, members or, or citizens, nationals of what we call the Five Eyes countries. Um, I assume the sky didn't fall from from allowing that to happen. But did did uh, did did the government or you learn anything in particular from that? Uh, it absolutely didn't fall, and we produced great results from New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the UK. And, and it, it inc increased and improved the quality of the overall program. So I think it was a very good step to take there. But mind you, when we talk about international participation, the DOD is uh, continuously running what's called a vulnerability disclosure program, meaning a program where they don't pay bounties, but they do uh, receive and accept uh, submissions from anybody. In that program, it's open to anybody on the whole planet. So they do get uh, submissions from even more countries in, in their vulnerability disclosure program. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that vulnerability disclosure process because that has been up and running for a few months now. And I think you guys actually operate it on behalf of the DOD. Um, can you say anything we about do. can you say anything about um, how successful it's been? What sorts of reports you've gotten through that portal? How it compares to this other situation when you're actually offering money versus when you're not? The they are showing the DoD is here showing the the best practice of doing a program like this. You should always have a vulnerability disclosure policy running in the background and be ready to receive reports from anybody on outside. And the principle here is the if you see something, say something. And that's now what's recommended by the FTC. We just saw the DOJ publish a, a, a framework for vulnerability disclosure programs. And just the other week, uh, CERT CC 
uh, also published their own study in vulnerability disclosure programs. So if you are a new organization, new to this practice, you should actually start there. And when you have that process in place, then you can take the step up to rewarding the researchers and the hackers, i.e. running a bug bounty program. Um, you mentioned the vetting process earlier on and the, and the fact that you had uh, been a little bit more, you, you had whittled your group for the Air Force version down to a little bit more of a finite group than, than, than in the first edition, Hack the Pentagon. Talk about how that vetting process works, why in the first place you, you want to have a screening process and, and how rigorous it is. It's a very rigorous process and we do it every single day. Uh, if When you look at Hacker One and the, the community that we have of hackers and researchers, you could see there's a talent agency or a sports league where we keep track of every performance and every hacker has a reputation score, which indicates how much they participated and how good they are. So once we then launch a program, we can out of this community of over 100,000 individuals, we can pick those who have the exact right skill, the exact right passion to do this. They, they may reside in the country of choice or something. So we can narrow it down to a very small group that has been selected from a, an enormous community of experts. And this is what we are doing with the DOD, um, where we add additional uh, requirements on the background check and the vetting of, of the hackers. But we do. So you could say we, we filter both for skill and for, for background criteria. And as, as you've gone through these, is there a particular demographic? Is, is there a type of hacker that's, that's more interested in, in going up against a government system than, let's say, Google? No, I would say everybody is interested in the government because it's seen as such a, you know, it's perhaps the most respectable organization you can think of. And, and there's a mix of, of a desire to help and also to see whether you can break in and find a hole in their systems. So I think it attracts all and any types of, of hackers that we have in the network. Another unique thing about the government, of course, is, you know, agencies, particularly the, the, the Defense Department, has vast resources of its own to, to put into information assurance and run its own, you know, red team exercises against its systems. So, you know, is there anything in particular about these vulnerabilities that your folks are finding you know, that makes them findable by a crowdsource method and not by the government's own information assurance processes? That's such a good question. And it, it points to the, the heart of the business model here. The power of bug bounty programs and vulnerability disclosure programs is the diversity of the community on the outside. So it's not necessarily that they are any smarter or any better uh, educated or trained. It is their lack of bias. The fact that they are on the outside, it's a diverse group, and they have no pre-existing notion or belief about the system. So they're just more creative. And it's not unlike when you write your own text and you can't find the typos in what you wrote. But human beings tend to have this ownership bias where it's difficult to find flaw in something that you own or produced. But if you're on the outside, it's much easier, even if you technically are no smarter or no better. I mean, we have excellent researchers. They are among the best in the world, but the Pentagon has some of the best experts on the inside as well. But once you're on the inside, you lose a little bit of that creative thinking and you become more biased towards the systems you are running. 
say a little bit more about bias. That's really interesting. Um, you become biased just because you work around and in these systems every single day. So, what your judgment gets jaded? Yes, you, you, because you you read the documentation. You know how the system should be used. You know how what the instructions are. You you communicate with your colleagues and you comment on it and you you form a, a sort of an orderly picture of the system. But somebody who comes in from the outside is also looking for all the ways in which the software was not intended to be used. And, and here, now we're getting into technology but, and science, but a, a major cause for, of security vulnerabilities is that the software does more than it was intended to do. And it's very difficult to test for that. And, um, but that's what the, the hackers and the security researchers do. They say, what if I do this? Maybe it will, the system will react to it. And they go beyond the intended use of the software. And that's how they typically find the, the security vulnerabilities. Uh, and again, if you're on the inside, you know the system, you've read the reference manual and the documentation, you tend to forget that there could be some functionality that hasn't even been documented. Martin Mikos is the CEO of HackerOne, the company that's running bug bounties for DoD under an ongoing IDIQ contract. We'll come back and talk more about the future of those competitions in the military and elsewhere in government after another short break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Servio. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our conversation with Martin Mikos, he's the CEO of HackerOne, the company that is running white hat hacker competitions or bug bounties under a contract with the Defense Department. The latest of those competitions, Hack the Air Force, has just wrapped up, finding 207 verified vulnerabilities in Air Force systems. And Martin, th- this may be a question that we would have to ask the Air Force, but I, I, I wonder, you, you may have not even even gone through the bug reports in sufficient detail to tell me this, but but can you say anything about the severity of the bugs that were uncovered in this particular bounty in terms of, you know, bad things that could have happened if they were found by a black hat hacker instead of a white hat hacker? Yes, we, we always track the severity of the bugs. And now in, in this program, we had a total, as I mentioned, a total of 207 valid submissions. And then we, we give them five different severity rankings. Uh, the top two, uh, high severity and critical, if I remember correctly, we had nine of them in this program, which is a, a common ratio, maybe a little bit lower than normal, but it's, it's not unusual. So a, a typical ratio of, of uh, critical bugs to all bugs. And any of those could have been the cause of a, a, a criminal or a, a breach or a breach by an adversary. And now they've been fixed and can't be used by anybody for malicious purposes. But but we have to remember every time when we talk about vulnerabilities that it's not always a one-to-one relationship there. Some of the, the breaches that happen um, are making use of a number of separate vulnerabilities and they jump from one to the other to create a chain to, to break into the system. So so to, to do this what-if analysis would be really difficult. But but we do know that when you fixed 207 vulnerabilities and some of them were high uh, severity and critical, it means you are much safer than before. Mm. 
you, you guys run these bounties, obviously, for Fortune 500 companies, a number of different private sector organizations. I, th- I think public sector is still a relatively new thing. Just as a general matter, what's it like for a company like yours to run one of these for a, a public sector organization versus, you know, a, a, a big company? Are they more or less risk averse? And in, in what other ways would you compare and contrast them? We have been absolutely delighted by working with the DOD and the, the level of professionalism and understanding of this, the the speed at which they move. We have actually seen very little difference to the private sector there. Maybe as a startup from San Francisco, we could note that, that submitting the bid for the, the project was a big undertaking for us because we had to produce documentation uh, demonstrating every single aspect of our offering. Whereas when we sell to the private sector, it's, there's less paperwork involved. But I would say that's the only difference. Other than that, it's, it's the operation of the program is similar to operating it for, for a uh, regular um, enterprise, large enterprise or small enterprise. Hmm. We talked earlier about the fact that this is, this is number three. They've all been relatively small scale so far. So what's next? I mean, what's the next logical step for, for DOD or the federal government to take with bug bounties? Um, what could it be and what should it be? Uh, I think they're taking all the right steps. And, and as you may know, HackerOne is under a multi-year uh, contract with the DOD to, to operate as many challenges as they would like us to do. So, so in that sense, we are now standing ready here for the next order. And when it comes in, we will execute and, and deliver good results again. What that next challenge will be and what it will be called, that's up to our customer to decide and, and inform. But we certainly stand ready, and I expect that that very soon we will be engaged in the in the next program. Um, and that's within the DoD. I think you are seeing now that there are other federal agencies that are waking up to this and and starting to explore it. Uh, we signed a contract with the GSA in the spring, so they were our second second federal agency to be become a customer hacker one. And there are others that are now looking into it. So I would expect it to keep growing over the coming months and years into a much bigger practice because the results are so overwhelmingly good. There's no, sort of, there's no question about the usefulness of this. Uh, the more money you pay, the more results you have received. So there's no risk of wasting money on it because the only case in which you're spending more money is that you're getting more results. So that's why it's such a powerful model for security of, of software in the modern world. And that GSA contract that you mentioned, is, is that similar in character to the, the IDIQ that you have with DOD so that, you know, civilian federal agencies can just jump on it and, and, and launch a bug bounty when they decide they want to? Uh, not really. That's a specific bug bounty program for them okay. alone. Others can, of course, come to us and request similar things and we can quickly get them up and running. But the, the contract is uh, as such is not as broad as the, the one we have with the DOD. Got it. Okay. For for a federal agency that has not yet tried a bug bounty um, and is interested in doing so, what what would you say the things that they need to be thinking about ahead of time are? What what do they need to do to prepare for for this sort of approach? First of all, I think every federal agency and every company should have a program like this. Uh, to get there, you need essentially th- three components inside your organization. At the top, you need a blessing from the top decision makers who need to state that this is important. I think that's already happening at the highest level of, of our government. 
Number two, you need a security team that can handle the incoming vulnerability submissions, go through them, prioritize them, and and send them on to the to their right owners. I think that's also a relatively straightforward thing. The third one is you need to ensure the ability to fix the vulnerabilities that are being reported and detected. In the government, a lot of the software that's in use has been developed by external third parties, system integrators, software houses, and so on. So, so as a federal agency, you need to make sure that you have the commitment from those companies to come back in and fix what they built. And that's a very important background task that all of those agencies will have to deal with. HackerOne can help there, but we can't do it for them. So they need to do that. So in summary, those three uh, uh, tenets. Number one, uh, a blessing and a decision from the top of the decision-making chain. Number two, a security team that can deal with the incoming reports and communicate with the researchers. And number three, the ability to fix vulnerabilities once they have been reported. That third point, and with those, you're good to go. That third point is actually really interesting yeah, and something I'd never thought about before. Um, has, has, as you've gone through these with DOD, have you found that their, their software vendors have generally been willing and helpful to, to come back in and help their, in some cases, former customers? They have, and we are really positively surprised that it's happening. And of course, the DOD has a lot of negotiation power, and they can call their their uh, vendors and say, "You just need to step up to this and fix it," because there's so there needs to be so much trust between them that no vendor would refuse to fix something, even if the contract has lapsed and maybe there isn't an immediate payment for it. So it has worked better than we assume. But we actually believe that this is of such high societal importance that that nothing should be be a, a allowed to stop uh, organizations from having their security vulnerabilities fixed because anything else is much more damaging and much more expensive. Martin Mikos is CEO of Hacker One, the company running bug bounties on the Defense Department's behalf. One last break, and when we come back, Rick Weidman from the Vietnam Veterans of America joins us to talk about what his group sees as a major cyber vulnerability, putting service members and veterans' personal data at risk. They've sued the Pentagon in hopes of making changes. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. We're back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Pentagon's Defense Manpower Data Center runs a public website that lets anyone with personal information about a service member, their name, their social security, their date of birth, find more details about them. Details like whether they're still serving in the military, when they enlisted, and their separation date. The public database was set up to help financial institutions comply with the Service Member Civil Relief Act, which grants a host of legal protections for members of the military. But a new lawsuit by the Vietnam Veterans of America claims the way DOD is implementing the website puts sensitive data about millions of troops and veterans at risk. Wick Weidman is VVA's Director for Policy and Government Affairs. He talked with me about their complaint. The SCRA database is just keys to the kingdom. It's not a limited database. Um, and once you're in, you're in. And that's been our problem with it all along, is that uh, these companies are getting in there and getting personal information. Uh, so one of the, our members who brought it to our attention is from Western New York, 
and he got fell for one of these scams and figured, well, you know, it must be okay because um, otherwise he wouldn't have had the data I'd left the Air Force, etc. The purpose of the database, ostensibly, is for banks to verify that people uh, during periods of deployment, you can't foreclose, you can't um, can't up uh, mortgage, you can't do a lot of things, so that people aren't financially ruined. So, so that's the purpose of the database. But it has gone way beyond that. So you have outfits like ID Me, and uh, now there's a commercial outfit that they're uh, using to verify people's veteran status in order to be able to access the PX, you know, APs. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Exchanges. Becoming, um, which will happen on Veterans Day this year. It'll be opened up to veterans as well as active duty. Right. So... You know, there are some legitimate uses of it, but it's not its not controlled. You don't know who's gone on and in and pulled your information. So the dangers of the way this thing is, is um, for those who are active duty, they're in that. And um, uh, so terrorists can find out a home of record on somebody. They can find out dates you were deployed. On and on and on. It's all in there. And if you're going to be deployed, it's in there. So um, particularly for special ops people, it's really dangerous. That's why it's a matter of national security that this thing is so loosey-goosey. So clarify for me a little bit that the types of information we're talking about, because when I go to the public website and, and, mm-hmm. and punch in a, a date of birth and a name, a social security number, what comes back is that those types of information that you were just talking about a second ago, you know, dates of service, whether or not the person is on active duty. I, I don't see things like blood type and medical history, those kinds of things. So w- describe to me what you're talking about there. Is that through some other kind of backdoor into the DMDC database that's not the public website? Yes. There are other ways where they set up a link for companies that are continuously going in. And um, that is different from what's on the website. Right. That's my understanding, and that's our allocation. But even if they just use the public website, you don't know who's pulling your information because they don't track it. And just to play devil's advocate, I think part of the reason for that is um, under the current regulations, you know, you, you they they apply to you know fly-by-night storefront payday lenders and you know mall kiosks and really anyone who's offering financial services to a service member. So they've got to be able to verify someone's status. So I, I would imagine that is why it is so open. So how do you strike that balance between making sure that? any legitimate, you know, vendor of financial products can get access and that it's not open to potential terrorists? Um, you know, the individual could always give people that a copy of their orders overseas, and then they would know they're deployed. And it's not open then to anybody who wants to contact it. Huh? That's an elegant solution. So what exactly are you asking the court to do? They need to tighten up the security that people have a right to know who's getting into their material. One and then two, there should be a permanent record. They could keep a track, a permanent record about who is accessing whose record, but they don't. I I assume before going to court, you guys had some more informal back and forth with DOD to try to get them to address your concerns. Uh, d- describe that. Have they done anything up to this point? Nothing. Um, we uh, worked with an attorney from Arnold and Porter 
who had been a Pentagon official at one point, who wrote a long legal memorandum to them about this stuff and got blown off. <laughs> I mean, just blown off. Oh, it's not, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. And uh, they weren't even willing to talk about it. They just said no. So at that point, we said, well, what's another way to do it? They don't want to talk about it and um, much less do anything about it. So if you have to sue them to get their attention so they'll be reasonable, then we're not averse to doing that. And so um, that's okay. So we'll, we've done it before. And um, if if they're reasonable in when it comes time to settle, then we'll do it. And if not, you know, we'll fight them to the last dog dies. And we have suits against the CIA and DOD, and we keep winning on appeal, uh, and DOD keeps not complying uh, with the court order. And we will never give up on that until we finally get justice for the veterans who were used as guinea pigs at Edgewood Arsenal and elsewhere. That's Rick Weidman, the Director for Policy and Government Affairs with the Vietnam Veterans of America, talking with me about VVA's federal lawsuit claiming the Defense Department is putting service member and veteran data at risk. With the Defense Manpower Data Center's public website, the Pentagon launched to help businesses comply with the Service Member Civil Relief Act. Earlier in the program, we talked to retired Rear Admiral Bill Lair about the Pentagon's decision to elevate U.S. Cyber Command to a full combatant command, and Martin Mikos, the CEO of Hacker One, about the recently concluded Hack the Air Force Company. Petition. If you missed any of this week's program, go to federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD, or you can download or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks as always for listening. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.